Welcome to church. Amen. We got one person excited, two people excited. Amen. Amen. You know, as I contemplated our next sermon series, this sermon series that we're about to teach on for the next seven weeks is one that I always find to be refreshing to help me to refocus on Christ. And I pray that as we go through this together, you will see a little bit about what I mean. You know, sometimes, I don't know, you get to a place in your life, can we turn the lights all the way up if they're not, that we want to uh, be able to turn over a new leaf and do things in a more powerful and a more effective way. You know, sometimes you just walk out to that garage and you look and you say, I can't take another day of this, we're going to clean this area up. Sometimes our teens, without us even saying anything, walk into their bedrooms and they go, you know what, I've looked at this cereal bowl for enough weeks, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make a new change. And you know what, I have realized sometimes in our spiritual life, we can realize that it's a little sluggish, we're not giving it our all, we're not doing everything that we could do to be who God has called us to be, and we wake up one day and say, I want to change my story. And so if that is you this morning, I know I got a lot of people telling me they would be joining us online. If that is you this morning, just put it in the comments, that is me. If that's you this morning in the house, just say, that is me. And so we're going to go ahead and get started with that if you are ready to change your story and change your life. Today's sermon is entitled, Flip the Script. Somebody say, Flip the Script. On April 20th, 1913, Sir William Osler delivered a speech at Yale University. It was a simple message, and I'll give you the cliff notes. Four words, live in daytight compartments. Now, I know we have some that take notes and some that don't, but I'm going to tell you today you're going to get some nuggets that you're going to want to come back to, and I'm going to encourage you to write down those four words if you're a note taker, even if you're taking notes in the comments. Live in day-tight compartments. Now, that is easier said than done, but if you can pull it off, if you can put it into practice, it is the solution to a thousand problems. Now, I want you to really listen to what I'm about to share with you, some statistics that I think are important. According to psychologists Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert, the average person spends 46.9% of their time thinking about something other than what they're doing in the present moment. That's almost half of our time. We are living in the wrong time zone. We're depressed about the past. We're worried about the future. We're distracted. We're frustrated. We're overwhelmed by this, that, and the other. We are half present half the time, which means we're half alive. The only way to be fully alive is to be fully present. And the only way to be fully present is, you've guessed it, to live 
in day-tight compartments. Now, this is not just a good idea. This is a God idea. Give us this day our daily bread. Take up your cross daily. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. His mercies are new every morning. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not worry about tomorrow. Come on, somebody. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Our job is to win the day. Somebody say, win the day. Win the day. Now, I have no idea what goal you're going after, what problem you're trying to solve, what habit you're trying to break or to build. But I do know the secret to all of our success. It's going to happen one day at a time. You have to win the day. Then you have to get up and do it all over again the next day. Now, if you do this two days in a row, it's called a winning streak. It's also called sanctification. Here's what we're going to do over the next seven weeks. We're going to unpack seven habits that will help you to stress less and accomplish more. The first one is, as we said today, flip the script, kiss the wave, eat the frog, fly the kite, cut the rope, wind the clock, and seed the clouds. And let me plant a seed of faith for you here right now. Almost anyone can accomplish almost anything if they work at it long enough, hard enough, and smart enough. And you are capable of more than you can imagine. How do I know this? Because God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or think or even imagine. That said, 75% of New Year's resolutions fail within the first month. Within the first month. Why? When you think in one-year timelines, it's overwhelming. You feel like quitting before you even start. So here's the question, and we'll keep coming back to it during the series. Pick a habit, any habit. Can you do it for a day? You have to take your life goals and reverse engineer them into daily habits. Can you do it for one day? Here's the good news. The only ceiling on your intimacy with God and impact on the world is daily spiritual disciplines. If you meet with God every day, he is going to show up and show off in your life. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me there in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. 
If you need a Bible, lift your hand. One will be provided for you. But before we zoom in, let me zoom out. There's a quote I found by Vladimir Lenin that is so powerful. There are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen. Let me push the envelope and up the ante. There are days when decades happen. Having said that, let me say this. You can't just flip the calendar and expect everything to change. We've talked about that. You can't just go from December 30th of, or 31st of one year and then flip the little calendar that you have sitting on your desk and expect everything to change because you flipped the date. But you have to flip the script. You have to flip the script. It's the first of seven habits that we're going to be talking about from a book by Mark Batterson entitled Win the Day. And here's the big idea of the book. If you want to change your life, you have to change your story. In the science of cybernetics, there are two kinds of change. Oh, this is so good, y'all. I hope you get this. First order change is behavioral. It's doing something more or less. If you're trying to lose weight, eating less and exercising more are the steps you take in that direction. So first order change can facilitate a quick fix. But here's what I want us to catch this morning. Second order change passes the test of time. Second order change is conceptual. I was thinking about a, a real practical example. Many of you are familiar with Weight Watchers and a lot of programs that are really successful in helping you to, to really measure how to eat less and how to move more. And so they have points and they have all these different systems and they're really effective. And then I remember a couple years ago, I became acquainted with another competitor and it was called Noom. And people made fun of Noom because it was all about behavioral change. It was all about thinking about food differently. And I felt like there was some merit to that. Just the other day, we had ordered um, a salad. And even though it was a salad, it was a huge salad. And once I made it about halfway through, I was full. And I kept eating. And I caught myself. And I said, why are you doing this? You've conditioned yourself to think since you were a child and your parents said what? Eat all your food. I've conditioned myself for so many years that I must eat all of my food to the point where I will eat beyond necessity. I'm not even hungry anymore, but I don't want to be wasteful. This was a $14 salad. I got to eat this. And so I realized that second order change is recognizing I ain't got to eat nothing. I can throw $7 away and save myself the headache of putting on calories and pounds that I don't want and that I'm going to have to later have to figure out how to get rid of. So second order change is conceptual. It's mind over matter. 
And that's where the magic happens because everything is created twice. Did you get that? Everything is created twice. First creation is mental. It's internal. And second creation is physical. It's external. Everything was once a thought, and that includes you. You don't just bear his image. You are his idea. You are his workmanship. You are a unique expression of God's imagination. To see yourself as anything less is to believe a lie. There has never been and never will be anyone like you. And you know what? That's not even a testament to you. It's a testament to the God who created you. The significance is this. No one can worship God like you. No one can worship God for you. No one can serve God like you. No one can serve God for you. And we tend to think of habits as external exercises that increase proficiency or productivity. It's practicing scales. It's practicing skills, those external habits will pay dividends, no doubt. But the biggest return on investment, what I would call high leverage habits, are the internal habits that no one sees. It's your internal monologue. Ooh, I hope you get this. It's the way you explain your experiences to yourself. It's the stories you tell yourself day in and day out. I've seen this be so critical in people's lives. When people come to me with issues or, or, or a problem or a concern, the way that they frame that concern, the way that they see that issue, the way that they see themselves in that issue is so important. It's the difference between making it in your marriage a day and making it in your marriage a lifetime. It's the difference between being able to recover from an illness and not being able to get back on. The way you see something, the way you internalize it, the way you view it is so important. On average, about 60,000 thoughts fire across our synapses every single day. According to a study done by the Cleveland Clinic, 80% of those are negative. 80%. Of those thoughts are negative. The problem is our stinking thinking. As a man thinketh in his heart, says the writer of the Proverbs, so is he. So do you see how it could be a problem when we don't capture our thoughts? When our thoughts run rampant in our mind and they are negative and we have self-defeating thoughts and self-defeating thinking, oh, this ain't never going to work. I ain't never going to be able to get out of this debt. I ain't never going to meet nobody. 
the thinking, the thoughts. Your thoughts have a psychological and physiological effect. Did you catch that last part? A physiological effect. Your thoughts have the power to lower your blood pressure. Your thoughts have the power to slow your pulse, to boost your immunity. I'll never forget when Pastor Charles had his diagnosis of high blood pressure and Sister Bonnie pulled me to the side after service and she said, I want you guys to watch this show and it will show you how you can use your thoughts to control your blood pressure. And I was like, what? And I watched the show and my mind was blown. And then I dragged Pastor Charles, and then I got my sister, and then I got everybody I know to watch it because that was beyond my understanding that my thoughts were that powerful. But they are. Either way, your battle is won or lost in the mind. Before you even lift a finger, it's really funny because because of that, Pastor Charles and I have learned, sometimes we just don't even want certain people to do stuff. If you can see that the moment you ask them, they're dragging, don't worry about it. Just stop right there. Don't even, don't even worry about it because you're not going to be successful at what I asked you to do because you didn't already made up your mind by the way that you're proceeding. This ain't going to work. This is dumb. You have to have it in your mind. You have to proceed. Sometimes I have to catch myself. If I'm, it could be something as simple as you're going into um, an office and you're supposed to have a certain piece of paper and you lost that piece of paper and you're going into that office and you're getting ready to ask them to do something that you know you're supposed to have this piece of paper for them to do. And you walk into it with a defeated mindset, they ain't gonna do this. Just go back to the car. You're defeated already. But if you walk into it with the mindset that the favor of God is going before me, God is making exceptions for me today. They're going to have a desire to do things for me that they don't normally do for other people. Thank you, Father God, for your favor in my life. It will change your outcome. The stories you tell yourself are far more important than the situations you find yourself in. The stories you tell yourself are far more important than the situations you find yourself in. This is where and how we flip the script. Are you there at Genesis 50, 20? With this as the backdrop, let me set the scene. When Joseph was a teenager, he had a dream, a dream that his brothers would one day bow down to him. You listening to this, Charles Joseph Lytle II? He makes the mistake of telling his brothers about this dream. And his brothers fake his death and sell him into slavery. Life goes from bad to worse. Joseph ends up in prison for a crime he did not commit. Now, if anybody could have played the victim card, it's Joseph. But this isn't the story that Joseph 
narrates to himself. Long story short, Joseph interprets, interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh puts his signet ring on Joseph's finger and makes him second in command. 13 years after selling him into slavery, his brothers come knocking on his door, begging for food because there is a famine. Genesis 43:28 says, his brothers bow down before him. Now, I can only imagine what Joseph must have thought, must have felt. It's the day when decades happened. The vision he had at 17, the vision that went off the rails, the vision that took a wrong turn, the vision that seemed so far away. Can anybody relate to that vision? The vision that doesn't seem possible is fulfilled in that moment. This is the day when decades happen. So all right, we're at chapter 50, verse 20. It's like a time-lapse video. Joseph looks back on all the ups and the downs, all the pain and all the suffering, all the twists and all the turns, and this is what he says. But as for ye, ye thought evil against me, but God met it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. In the New Living, it says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. May God give us 50-20 vision. Let me make this as simple as one, two, and three. If you want to flip the script, there's three things we have to get. Number one, you have to know your name. You have to know your name. Number two, you have to fix your focus. You have to fix your focus. And number three, you have to change your story. You have to change your story. Number one, let's break down, you have to know your name. More than a century ago, Charles Horton Cooley, the founder of the American Sociological Association said, I am not what I think I am. I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Now, it's a little bit of a tongue twister and a mind bender, but I bet it sounds vaguely familiar. Cooley calls it the looking glass self, and it's basing our sense of self on how we believe others see us. Our sense of self comes from a lot of different sources. Sometimes it's as simple as someone saying you're good at this or you're bad at that. Tons of studies have been done on this. And that's why we have to be careful. I think sometimes about how when teachers get information about a student from another year and it gets passed along and that, that child is already labeled by the time they get there and then that child starts playing into that label. Well, you said I'm bad, I'm bad. We play into the labels that people make up for us. Sometimes it's as simple as someone 
labeling you and you playing into that. It's letting other people narrate your story. It's living your life according to their expectations. So it's critical for us to take our cues from scripture. Why? Scripture is our script cure. Scripture is our script cure. The book of James likens the Bible to a mirror. This is where we discover who we are in the eyes of God. This is how we know our name. This is how we flipped the script. Let me dive back into the book of uh, Genesis and Joseph's story real quick. After playing a few mind games with his brothers, which I thought was totally justified, Joseph finally reveals his identity. Genesis 45.3 says, he says, I am Joseph. Now we read right past this, but we need to look at this for a moment because Joseph knows his name. Of course he knows his name is Joseph, but what we have to know is another fun fact, daily double if you already know this. When Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command, he doesn't just give him the signet ring, he gives him what? An Egyptian name, Zaphnath-Paneah. It would have been so easy for Joseph to forget who he was, because I'm second in command now. I'm Zaphnath-Paneah. It would have been so easy for Joseph to forget who God called him, not what someone else has named him. If you allow it, culture will name you or tame you. It will label you. It will define you. Cancel culture will chew you up and spit you out. So you have to know who you are. You have to know whose you are. You need to know your name. Your name is blessed. Your name is chosen. Your name is forgiven. Blameless. Adopted by the Heavenly Father. Redeemed by Christ. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Stamped with the image of God. Simply put, you are who God says you are. So if you want to flip the script, you really need to know your name. Number two, you have to fix your focus. There is a saying, your focus determines your reality. That is what was once said, if you watch Star Wars, to Luke Skywalker. But it's more than a Jedi mind trick. This is Philippians 4. If anything is right or good or pure or just or admirable, think on such things. Why? Because your focus will determine your reality. I remember specifically a time when I was going through grief. And the moment my mind would start to go to a dark place, I, would, I could almost imagine it like reeling it in, like with a fishing reel. I would go after the thought and start reeling it in and replace it with a thought that was good 
and one that was pure and one that was lovely and one that was of good rapport, something that would make my mind go to a different place. This battle in the mind is real, y'all. And some of y'all are losing battles in the world and you can't figure it out. And the answer is, because you're fighting again, as we said last week, it's flesh and blood with natural techniques. And I'm trying to teach you how to win the battle in your mind first. <laughs> My daughter. If you're looking for an excuse, you will always find one. If you're looking for something to be grateful for, you'll find it. There's a concept in psychology called cognitive reappraisal. It's telling yourself a different story about what is happening. And Joseph, Joseph is exhibit A. See, we've got to begin to do this, and I can think of times where I didn't realize what it was called. I didn't realize the psychological term for it, but this is something I've been doing for a long time. I could be going through something horrible, and we'll laugh about it, and we'll just reframe it and say, oh, God, just prepare me for my breakthrough. And they'll be looking at me like, is that what's happening, or are you just going through something terrible? No, I'm not going through something terrible. God is preparing me for my breakthrough. And I laugh about it, but now I understand that was a very necessary technique to tell my story and reframe it in such a way where I could process it as a victor and not the victim. Some of you have been through some really tragic, terrible scenarios. And if you process that where you're always the victim, and as you are entitled to be, it will keep you in a mindset that will not allow you to be free. But if you begin to reframe it, God was just preparing me for something greater. God was just getting me ready. It was just some things I had to learn. There was just some lessons I had to go through, some tenacity I had to develop. God was just preparing me for something bigger. If you're looking for an excuse, you'll find one. If you're looking for something to be grateful, you'll find it. Joseph could have definitely played the victim card. He also could have played God and even the score with his brothers. He could have been petty. He doesn't do either of those things, though. Why? Because he has a God's eye view. Yeah, you meant it from a harm. But God, he had this all along positioned for such a time as this. Dr. Martin Seligman, the former president of the APA, said that all of us have what he calls an explanatory style. This is real important, get this down. Explanatory style is the manner in which you habitually explain to yourself why events happen. Explanatory style is the manner in which you habitually explain to yourself why events happen. If those explanations, not the experiences themselves, that make us or break us. So what is Joseph's explanatory style? It's Genesis 50, 20. 
it's you intended to harm me, but that isn't where I'm going to focus my energy. I am not going to focus my energy on what you intended to do. God intended for good for the saving of many lives. God is able to take what you intended and use it for my good. So it's capturing and reimagining and explaining to yourselves in a way that is very empowering even when someone does something bad to us. Imagine how that will impact our attitude. Imagine how that will impact our way of life. And I really actually didn't, again, know the terminology for this, but I've done this so many times. There have been times I've been the easiest example I could think of. There have been times I've been at a restaurant and everything is going wrong. I mean, the food is cold, it's 20 minutes late, the hair in the food, and, and you know, it's, it could take you over. And I was like, oh, God just trying to give us a blessing. They're getting ready to give us this food. <laughs> I re-explained it to myself in a way where instead of just being heated and steam coming out of my ears because I'm having a terrible experience, I explained it to myself that, oh, God just setting us up for a, a blessing. There are things that can be happening, things that can be going on, and it's not so much what's happening, but what you are explaining to yourself is happening that will make the difference. There was a meme that circulated at the end of the pandemic calling 2020 the dumpster fire. And it was funny, but it was the wrong explanation. 2020 wasn't a dumpster fire. It was a refining fire. And what comes out of the refiner's fire is always more pure, more precious, more valuable. Why? It's been refined by the touch of the master's hand. The prophet Malachi asked the question, who is able to endure? Who is able to stand? He will be like a blazing fire that refines metal like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. How do we fix our focus? The short answer is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. I'm thinking now about the moment when Peter gets out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. That took a ton of faith. I mean, realistically, I think about myself when I go to the beach, I have a saying, if I can't see the sand, it's not water I'm getting in. I need to see my feet. I need to see if Jaws is coming my way. I need to know what's going on in this water. If I can't see all of that, I'm not getting in. So Peter getting out of a boat in the night. Woo! Right? Here's the deal, though. Here's the deal. Here's the convicting deal. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out the boat. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out the boat. So many of us want to do these amazing things for God. 
We want to be blessed. We want to be highly favored. We want this and we want that. And we don't want to get out the boat. Here's what happened. He gets out of the boat because he is focused on Jesus. And Jesus walks on water, right? He's simply doing what he's seeing. That's what following Jesus is all about. Then he loses focus. He starts, fo he starts focusing on the wind and on the waves, and that's when we start to sink. A couple of quick, easy applications right here. Number one, keep a gratitude journal. One of the simplest ways to fix our focus is to keep a gratitude journal. It will sanctify your activating system, the part of the brain that determines what we notice and what goes unnoticed, the reticular activating system. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. All of this to say this, your explanations are more important than your experiences. It's like the person who says, oh, I got all this laundry to do. And then someone else says, thank you, Father, that I have laundry to do. Amen. It's like that person says, oh, this house is so dirty. I got to go clean this house. And then the person that says, thank you, Father, I have a house to clean. Number two, change of pace, change of place. Change of place and change of pace equal change of perspective. The key to spiritual growth is routine. But once the routine becomes routine, you have to change the routine. I'll give you a real practical example. I go to um, this exercise coach, and they have this system with these weights that once they measure every time I lift the weights, you know, how much I've lifted and what my resistance is and all this other kind of stuff. And after a couple of weeks, I realized when I came back in, I was like, oh, this is heavy. And they were like, oh, well, you hit your best last week. And I'm like, and? And they're like, well, every time you hit your best, we increase the weights. And I was like, oh, y'all ain't tell me that. <laughs> so then I started trying like to just hit it just enough, but not like hit my best, because I ain't wanted to like shift on me. And my daughter called me out. She was like, well, what's the point of that? It's strength conditioning. If you don't push yourself to the limit, then what's the point? My muscles remember I can already do that. Now it's time to change the pace. And every year we have to find ways spiritually to change the pace. I remember I used to fast a certain way, and then I realized, I said, this ain't even hard for me no more. I can go without eating nothing all day and all night. I do that when I get busy. Now, if I'm really trying to change the perspective, I have to change the input. Now I got to give a little bit more. How about this time when I fast, I'm going to do something different. And now, as you know, when I fast, I say, I'm not going to have coffee. Telling myself I'm not going to have coffee for a week is the biggest fast I could ever give myself because that's something I value. That's something I'm going to actually miss. Change of pace plus change of place equals change of perspective. 
Every year you can download a Bible reading plan and then change the translation because you know this one already. Let's try something different. Let's switch it up. It's a change of pace. There's so many ways to put this into practice. You can do a silent retreat. You can practice meditation. Fasting is a fantastic way to flip the script. And number three, read old books. If you want new ideas, says Ivan Pavlov, read old books, even biographies. Why? They help us to see our life from a different perspective. That said, no book is older and no book is better than the Bible. It gives us a God's eye view. It reminds us of the meta-narrative. The Jewish theologian Abraham Herschel said that prophecy is exegesis of existence from a divine perspective. He also said in decisive hours of history, it dawns upon us that we would not trade certain lines in the book of Isaiah for the seven wonders of the world. During times of crisis, we need to get a word from God. Scripture, scripture as I said earlier, is our script cure. It is our plumb line. It is our anchor line. It is our lifeline. Which brings us to the last point, number three. You have to change your story. According to a study done by Emory University, this blew my mind. The best predictor of a child's emotional well-being is not getting them into a great school. It's not giving them lots of hugs and kisses. It's not taking them on a pilgrimage to Disney World. According to these researchers, the number one indicator of emotional well-being is a child knowing their family history. What? Here's what I know for sure. All of us are born into someone else's story. We all have a family of origin. And that is our Genesis story. Our children were born into our story. They love to hear the little story how mommy met daddy and this and that and all that. They're born into our story for better or for worse. All of us are born into someone else's story. But here's the good news. As children of God, when we get engrafted into God's family, we get grafted into God's story. And that is huge. Scripture becomes our script. This book is our backstory, and our lives become the rest of the story. You are the fifth gospel, you are Acts 29. You are Revelation 23. You are the only Bible that some people will ever read. The question is this, is your life a good translation? Here's how it works. As we close, you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. You can do that right here, right now. 
You give the author and perfecter of faith complete editorial control of the story. And he begins writing his story, history with a hyphen, in you and through you. I don't know if you realize how powerful that is. And as I began to think when I really gave my life to Christ and gave him editorial control, <laughs> you don't go to law school with the intentions of becoming an attorney and practice law for a decade just to wind up pastoring and not using your law degree at all. But it looks like that sometimes when you give God your life and say, here, you write your story. You can see your life take a pivot. You can see your life go in another direction. And the next thing you know, your life is telling a story that is magnificent and that is wonderful and that is impactful. And you're going, wow, I would have never written that story for myself. But thank you, Father God, that you saw something for me that I did not see. I'm going to encourage you this morning, whether that story is beginning by giving your life to Christ or that story is beginning by rededicating your life and saying, God, have complete control. Do whatever it is you want to do with me, even if it's taking me in a different direction and on a new path. Let's follow Christ. Let's imitate him in the habit formation. Can we pray together? Father, I thank you that you're inspiring us to flip the script. For many of us, we've been doing the same thing over and over, expecting something different to result, and we are willing to make a change. We are willing to consecrate, to submit to you, to give our lives to you, and to have you take full control. God, I ask that you would begin to do that in our lives this morning that you would begin to show us a new way, show us and help us to create new habits, help us to release old habits that don't serve us or serve you. God, help us to be intentional and not to give up so quickly because things aren't going the way that we plan. Help us, Father God, to begin to just master the art of winning the day, living each day for you, making each day a living sacrifice, making each day coming through to you and seeking you for our daily bread. Father, Help us to win each and every day and then the next day and the next day until our lives look like we can't even remember them. But they do look like you, your mirrored image of you, that we are a reflection of you, that when people look at us, they no longer see us, but they will see you. God, we ask for these blessings because we know that we can, because we know that it is your will, and we ask them in your holy and your sacred name. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.